Jennifer Cognard Black, a professor of English at St. Mary's College of Maryland, and Melissa A. Goldthwaite, a professor of English at St. Joseph's University, open a new collection of essays they have edited with these words, quote, food is personal, food is social, food is political, food is historical, food is cultural. And they ask how in an age of mass factory farming, processed and prepackaged meals and unprecedented food waste, people can eat ethically. Their book, Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically, is published by NYU Press and brings Professor Goldthway to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Uh, the contributors to your book include award-winning writers, chefs, farmers, activists, educators, journalists. What led the two of you, both English professors, to put together this wide-ranging collection of essays about food? Jennifer Cunard Black and I have been teaching food writing and the literatures of food for over 20 years. And we started when we began teaching food writing, looking at literature that included recipes. But after a few years of teaching a class that we called Books That Cook, we started going beyond what is literature that includes recipes to asking where does our food come from? And um, how do we talk about that with students? How do we ask questions about where our food comes from, who has enough to eat and who doesn't? And we both started teaching um, service learning classes. My students worked with the Philadelphia Coalition Against Hunger. Jennifer had a Fulbright to Amsterdam and she was working with students on food justice and her class was running during the pandemic and she had to leave Amsterdam and come home early when things started shutting down. And then we began talking about how we wanted not only to talk about these issues with our students, but to talk with other writers and other people who were reflecting on issues of um, food justice and to talk not only about our commitments, but where we felt conflicts. And that was the beginning of um, Good Eats. And you write that you sought to offer, quote, creative and nuanced food stories that link the culinary imagination to practices of everyday eating. Also, any... You, you say, any consideration of ethical eating requires ecological thinking and a close attention to relationships, the environment, and diversity. And that's what you were looking for in these essays that you wound up putting in your collection? Yes, we were definitely looking for um, diversity, ecological thinking, and people who could make commitments but not necessarily say this is the only way to eat ethically. We wanted to allow for even some contradiction within the text. So there's, you know, one author who definitely supports um, plant-based eating and a move toward veganism and others who are themselves um, hunters. 
There is a vegetarian who is raising four vegetarian sons, but comes from a butchering and meatpacking family. Mm. And so there's, there's a lot of um, thinking about how we live with others as well in terms of the commitments that we make when they sometimes contradict with how other people eat as well. So is one of your goals to encourage your readers to become more mindful of what and how they eat and to consider the, the larger systems and cultures that shape our eating, what, it, what it means to eat according to our values? Right. And to really think about those values and to talk with other people about them, we really wanted to um, value collaboration as well. So several of our authors were writing with other people, and we wanted to really encourage conversation and asking questions together. But you don't cite a specific diet or method for eating ethically. What no, about? we don't cite a, a specific diet. I think that eating ethically in some cases may depend on where you live and what community you live in. But I think that and we the traditions do support you, you come out of? The tradition you come out of, a lot of our writers do um, think about that. We, uh, um, Tate Walker, for instance, um, talks about her indigenous food ways. And I think that other writers, too, um, pay attention to the traditions that they came from. But they're also certainly willing to question some of those traditions as well. Be, because of ethics? Certainly because of ethics. In the case that I mentioned earlier, um, Jenny Spinner writing about um, choosing a different diet for her own family than the one that she grew up in, um, she certainly values the tradition and the family that she grew up in, and yet she she can still love them and respect them and choose something different for her own children and her family. You've uh, well, so the essays aren't lectures about how we should eat. Uh, you do con include contributors who are concerned with ethical choices. Right. I think we're all concerned with ethical choices, and we also um, value storytelling and the kind of self-reflection that comes along with that to think about how do we eat and why and to be able to have conversations with others about that. There are plenty of books that advocate for very particular diets or that are more focused on one thing that people can do. There are entire books on eating locally or books on um, veganism or books on any kind of approach to eating. But we wanted to have the kind of conversations in this book that we might have with our students where 
people come from different traditions. And one of the things that Jennifer and I both do in our classes is we ask students sometimes to make food and bring it in and share it. And one of the things that I've had to think about as a teacher is, um, you know, what do we do in those situations where somebody brings something that other people um, will not eat? And how do we still share and value each other, even if we make different decisions? So you have drawn from a wide range of writers and styles, even <laughs> poets. Yes. Yes, we um we teach literature, so um, we did draw from um, poets and creative nonfiction writers. Some of our writers also write fiction. So everyone who is included in this collection um, is a writer in some way. And we also have um, farmers and, anthrop and an anthropologist. And um, so there's a chef. And we tried to get people who had experience um, in the food world, but who would also pay attention to words and how they communicate. And the essays range from two pages to 25 pages. So we get some light little things and some really in-depth things. Yes, we hope it's a, a something where there's um, something for everyone. And you've divided the book into four sections, nature and nurture, appetite and restraint, what's eating us, and our past as present. Now, did you start off with those uh, four ideas or did they wind up being there because of the things that you found? They, the sections evolved organically. We um, started by asking writers that we knew, who we knew were interested in food and ethical eating. We asked them to write about their commitments, the conflicts they faced, and the conversations they were having. And they sent us essays, and then we asked them if they knew other writers who we could contact. Every writer in this book donated their work. Many, most of the essays were written for this collection. A few of them had been um, written, be published before, um, but every writer allowed us to um, use their work for free so that we could donate all royalties to two food organizations. And so we allowed them to write what they cared about and what interested them and um, put these on post-it notes and move them all around um, my dining room table at home and tried to tried to cluster them in ways that made sense. And then we titled the sections um, after we had clusters of different pieces. And uh, each section opens with an overview of the essays included in that section. Right. So we, the two of you collaborated. Uh, your your, uh, your co-editor lives in Maryland. You, you live here. So... How did you work that out? Was this something you did during the summer? 
We did um, a lot of work by phone and by Zoom. Um, Jennifer and I have known each other um, for nearly 30 years. We actually went to graduate school together. And so we've been having these conversations for decades. And we occasionally see one another in person, but a lot of the work we do is over the phone. Uh, well, so this is the result of modern technology. Uh, people are doing all sorts of things now with Zoom and the like that they couldn't have done in the past. That's right. And it's it's exciting. We also try to make time to be together and to eat together. And um, so we usually, we've done another book with NYU Press called Books That Cook. And when we were um, working on that book, we also did readings at one another's university and at other places locally. So we do meet up. So this is your second book on food? Um, and I also um, edited another collection called Food, Feminisms, and Rhetorics. Hmm. And um, Jennifer has an essay in that collection, too. But this is the second book that Jennifer and I have edited together with NYU Press. And I'm speaking with Melissa A. Goldthwaite, who is co-edited with Jennifer Cunard Black, a book called Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically, published by NYU Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. So you divided the book into four sections, Nature and Nurture, Appetite and Restraint, What's Eating Us, and Our Past as Present. Um, uh, did, did those titles come to you as a result of your looking at the essays that you'd collected, or were you looking specifically for things that would fit into those topics? They definitely came out of the essays themselves and the issues that the writers were working on, and so the, they did grow organically. Those sections grew out of the um, pieces that we received. And the topics range from looks at factory farming and the exploitive labor practices surrounding chocolate production to indigenous foodways and home and community gardens. You want to go into that? What are the exploitive labor practices that uh, are involved in chocolate production? So there's an essay by Lim Bloom where she talks about the um, cocoa bean industry and um, she talks about um, the, the problems with child labor in some cases and with, um, with problems with, oh gosh, all kinds of things. Hmm. Um, she talks about poverty and food insufficiency and um, exploitation by manufacturers. And um, she I'll talks about I'll the, never be able to eat chocolate the same way again. Well, I'll she, have a little she guilt. About that. Huh? She, de she definitely thinks about that. One of her, uh, her subtitle is, do I have to give up chocolate? And she <laughs> talks about the importance of um, 
chocolate in her own life, but she doesn't do this um, blindly. She wants to understand some of the issues and, you know, she, she's concerned about um, child labor practices and different things. Um, she doesn't at the end give up chocolate completely, but she does talk about um, trying to support uh, companies that um, at least try to, to work against those kinds of um, practices that she does not want to support. Where were all the sources of chocolate? Um, she she talks about. Um, let me just read a quick section from her book, um, from her essay. She says, in a world that consumes three million tons of cocoa beans annually, I am not alone in my devotion to chocolate. Like nuts in a candy bar, serious ethical matters that we seldom, if ever, think about are embedded in this consumption. For everything is value-laden, however innocuous-seeming, and every value is fraught with ethical issues. When we examine the production of cocoa in West Africa, poverty and food insufficiency acquire human faces, matters of exploitation fitfully addressed by manufacturers and largely ignored by food writers and consumers. Every aspect of the production process represents exploitative working conditions, all reprehensible and unethical. And exploitative working conditions are endemic in the the the, uh, the various things you discuss in this book. Right. Not and just chocolate. We, right. We have another writer who um, is a journalist, and she was um, interviewing someone at a um, chicken production plant, um, someone who is working under very dangerous conditions during COVID. Mm. And, and so this writer talked about how there are many people working under horrible conditions who cannot always be heard. Sometimes they're undocumented workers. And so they don't necessarily have the protections that they need. And so one way that everyone can can try to eat more ethically is to support the practices and the policies that help support workers and help consider their rights as well. Well, how would I know when I go to the supermarket whether the, that vegetable I'm about to buy was uh, produced ethically or unethically. I think that's a, a difficult a difficult thing and a difficult question because nobody's going to put a sign up in the grocery store that says um, farm workers were exploited for this. Um, one practice that many people um, tried to do is shop locally if they can at um, farms or through farmer markets where they know the people and can visit the farms. And I recognize and, and other record writers recognize that not everyone 
can do that, but that is something that many people can do. Many people also support um, local farmers through community-supported agriculture, um, getting CSA boxes from farmers who they know. And these kinds of ways of procuring food are certainly um, becoming more popular. But again, we, we don't necessarily, not everybody has the means to do that. And when I started um, really asking some of these questions and talking about these issues with my classes, I was in a grocery store in Philadelphia and there were guards at the door and I was looking at the signs in the grocery store that said that, um, that WIC vouchers, women with infants and children could not be used for organic food. And I remember standing there Why? thinking, you know, the 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 very people who need organic food, small children, and um, could not use their vouchers for this kind of food, I think because it was more expensive. And those are the kinds of policies that that I would want to see changed. And so, so I think that we can, if we can't shop at local places, maybe we can grow some of our own food, or maybe we can support policies in our communities that allow us to have more access to organic foods. Well, not all of us have places where we can grow our own food, but you do have uh, essays here about home and community gardens. Right. And gardening as an alternative to factory farming. Well, <laughs> sure. I think that that um, it's not an either or in that case, that um, even those of us who don't have a lot of land, um, we can grow some things in, in pots on our um, doorstep, which is what I do. I live just outside of Philadelphia and... I certainly grow some of my own food and I realize how difficult it is. Um, and that makes me more willing to um, spend more on the food that I do feel aligns with my ethical practices. But again, not everybody can um, have extra money in their food budgets. And I think that we should support those people as well. Was one of your goals to feature topics that describe the wider context of sustenance and ethical choices? Yes, we did. We wanted people to really think about um, the issues that affected them at that point in their life. So, for instance, the piece that I wrote was about hospital food. Mm -hmm. um, almost exactly five years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia and um, immediately was hospitalized for over a month. And in that case, I had never spent a lot of time until then thinking about hospital food and how hospitals um, did the work they did, but because that was an issue that was very important to me at that time when um, my life was at risk, I started researching hospitals that had um, 
tried to have healthier food practices that tried to partner with local farms and they're out there. There are places, even large institutions that are trying to do something better in terms of food. Are there foods that people with leukemia shouldn't eat? Well, this was something that was very interesting to me that I was, you know, trying my best to order off of this hospital menu. And one day I ordered a fresh fruit cup and, you know, the days before that it had some melon, a couple strawberries, a couple of grapes. And then the day that it showed up only with melon, I thought, what is going on? And I asked about it and they said, oh, you're neutropenic, which meant that I didn't have the appropriate neutrophils um, to protect me against bacteria. And so the food that was interdicted for me was fresh fruits and vegetables that had skin on them. So I couldn't eat strawberries. I couldn't eat grapes. And Ooh. it was really overwhelming to me not to be able to eat salads because all of the food that I believed was good for me was then um, labeled as a risk to me. And I did get sepsis twice. And um, it was after my neutrophil counts were back up that I started researching these policies of not giving patients um, fresh fruits and vegetables that hadn't been cooked. And I found that those neutropenic diets had been questioned by scientists. Um, and yet I also understood the larger issues facing food workers in hospitals that they're feeding an enormous number of people and they're trying to um, you know, wash the food very carefully and to keep patients safe. But perhaps the easiest way in their minds of keeping patients safe were to ask us to eat um, highly processed foods where they wouldn't have bacteria in them. But for me, eating highly processed packaged foods was something that I didn't want to do. So it was a definite conflict for me. Well, we often don't know what we can eat until we get sick from eating something that other people consider to be perfectly healthy. Now, you, now then there are other kinds of ethical issues. There are pieces in this book on vegetarianism and veganism and examinations of ethical meat eating and how food remains a, a vital connection point within our cultures and our histories. Right. Yes, so we we definitely have um, writers who are absolutely committed to vegetarianism and others to um, veganism, or at least moving toward a vegan future um, with plant-based diets. And yet we also have those writers who who do are practicing hunters and choose to um, procure their own um, meat in that way. Well, and then most of us who do eat meat wind up buying it at a supermarket or at a butcher shop. Do we have no idea of how it even got there? And I think the, that 
those are questions that you can ask and you can um, talk with with the people who are procuring your food if you're not able to do so yourself. Um, visiting farms in your area, looking up where they are, going to farmers markets and talking with the people who do produce your food, I think is, is a good starting point for many people. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Melissa Goldthwaite. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of Good Eats, the book that we're discussing. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation or more. In the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Melissa A. Goldthwaite, co-editor with Jennifer Cognard Black of Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically from NYU Press. Now, you do have historical topics here. They include traditional indigenous knowledge about food. Yes. Um, Go we ahead. Have a, we have a piece by um, Tate Walker, who um, her title is Colonialism Ate My Body, Exploring <laughs> the Intersections of Genocide and Diet for Manifest Destiny to Trendy Veganism. And she, uh, or they write um, about indigenous food practices and even trying to teach others about um, their ways of life. And Walker begins with an example um, of, of someone bringing a nutrition class to, um, to learn more about indigenous practices. And when um, a, a chicken is killed, Walker notices the students cringing and the the and Walker confronts a student about their position and their sense of privilege and they're not valuing the ways um, that um, the ways of eating and procuring food that are being practiced. And so Walker does go into um, writing about the killing of buffaloes mm -hmm. and um, the stealing of land and really 
weaves together issues from the past with ideas from the present, even as um, they look toward the future and how to eat um, ethically in a way that allows them to um, be in relationship with the land and with animals and to value their own cultural knowledge and to share that with others. There's a look at how the colonization of the Americas directly affected the diets of modern Americans. Right. And Walker does talk about um, the, you know, the the ways that that those um, decisions definitely affected the dietary problems that are in their community. And one way of of getting back to a healthier um, relationship with food is through valuing the practices that may have been forgotten um, as land was was taken and stolen they needed to they need to get back to the practices that maybe they have forgotten about and so one of the organizations that we're supporting with this book is um, the is a food sovereignty organization that works to um, to to teach practices, ancestral practices hmm. to native um, communities and has mentoring programs, um, seed saving and seed sharing. And those are all practices that we want to support as well. And how many of our practices were just imported from Europe or even Africa? Asia, yeah, I, obviously. Right. Sometimes we're we're taking practices that may have worked in one community and um, and putting them on people and places that that where it doesn't work. In a humorous piece titled "My Children's First Garden," Michael P. Branch shares his struggles with his attempts to grow a garden with his young daughters. What were the problems? Well, he was um, he was trying to garden in the um, high desert west, and um, this is it's it is a very funny piece, and he is trying to um, to develop a garden, and there are all sorts of things that go wrong, and um, critters eating all of the vegetables, or the weather. Um, ruining his his great plans and there's a water problem up, yeah so that definitely there was an issue of um water weather and um coyotes and it's it's a very funny piece and we we didn't want this book to be all serious i think that sometimes people can get really overwhelmed with you know, how do I eat? What do I do? And it becomes very serious and overwhelming. So we did also want to include some humor, but also to have people talk about what they've tried that with all the best intentions that may not have worked. And yet 
you can keep trying. And he goes through all sorts of things. He's, you know, trying to have this peaceful garden and he ends up um, putting, I don't know if it was coyote urine or fox urine on things and everything sort of blows up in his face. Well, you said that uh, not everything is serious, but there are serious pieces here. You mentioned pieces on vegetarianism and veganism. There's also examinations of ethical meat eating and how food remains a, a vital connection point within our cultures and histories. Right. We we do have, um, Lisa Knopp wrote a piece called Doves for Dinner, and um, Knopp herself is a vegetarian, and she talks about that, but she also talks about how her son is a hunter and he has um, an ethical basis for his choice in hunting, but she also talks about how they eat together and um, her her son will, will when he cooks for her, he, he cooks her vegetarian food and she also, um, even though she disagrees or does not hold his same practices of eating, she respects the ethical foundation that he has for what he chooses. That's Leah Penniman? No, that is Lisa Knopp. Oh, Lisa Knopp. Leah Penniman celebrates both ancestral seeds and, and wisdom when discussing her Afro-Indigenous farming and forestry practices. So many of the practices uh, farming practices in in the United States are, are inherited from all over the world? Right, and Leah Penniman um, is the um, founder of Soul Fire Farm, and um, Leah's work is, is really amazing, and um, there's a lot of work that um, Penniman does in honoring those who have come before um, her. And she talks about their um, ancestors coming over from Africa and braiding seeds into their hair. And so Penniman's work really values um, seed keeping and seed sharing and um, working to restore the land and also racial justice as well. And professional chef Therese Nelson looks into how hot sauce represents joy, expression, and magic for many Black people. Yes, and that's a, a that I think that piece is is a really happy piece as well. That while many of these pieces um, deal with a lot of difficult issues and ideas, there is also a real celebration of culture and, um, in this case, of hot sauce and the black table and. Um, Nelson writes that on the black table, the pursuit of flavor is like a religion. And in this piece, um, she includes a recipe for granddaddy's pickled pepper table sauce. <laughs> and so there's there's all kinds of things in this 
this book that you can have um, joy in your eating. And we think that that is tied to ethics as well, that we're not asking people to strip away everything that they love, um, but also to celebrate what is good in their lives um, and to do so in community with others. My guest is Melissa A. Goldthwaite. She is co-editor with Jennifer Cunyard Black of a new book called Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically, published by NYU Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, so you set out to put together a book about food and eating ethically. Um, <laughs> Was it hard to find these pieces? It actually wasn't because most of them were actually written for the collection. There were a few pieces that um, that we um, asked for permission to use from the writers that had been published previously. But for the most part, we went to writers and we said, you know, what what do you care about? What are the issues that are coming up for you as ethical eaters? And they wrote the pieces, they sent them to Jennifer and to me, and we gave them comments and they rewrote some hmm. Piece, people revised several times, but it was um, it was something that that people were happy to share their work and their ideas and their thinking, and we were really grateful for that. Well, one of the things that struck me is that um, most of us eat cross culturally. Uh, I eat foods that originated from all over, or, or styles of cooking from all over the world. And um, Chinese food is, has been a, a, a major source of, of pleasure for many people. In a piece titled Between the Shopping Cart and the Chinese Restaurant, Adrienne Sue explores her often complicated relationship between the joy and necessity of cooking at home and the enjoyment of communal dining, which is the way most non-Chinese people experience Chinese food by eating in a Chinese restaurant. Right. And Adrienne Sue um, herself is Chinese-American, and she grew up in Georgia. She now lives in Pennsylvania, where she is a poet and a college professor. And, you know, she said that at home, she tends to try to shop at local farms and and through a CSA. And yet when she eats with her family, she eats at restaurants um, that are often run by immigrants on really um, tight budget. And she... She says that the procuring of food at the restaurants at which she eats with her family may not um, be the same as what she produces at home. And yet she really wants to celebrate the Chinese restaurants in which she eats. And so she's she's holding commitments for the ways that she will eat at home, but she also really celebrates the large gatherings with her family 
um, and asks us to to think about, you know, supporting the people who are working hard and feeding us as well. And so this was one of the cases where, you know, we said, well, what are your commitments, but also where do you feel conflicts? And she can hold both of the these eating experiences as good ones to her, even if they're different, the ways that she eats at home and the restaurants that she supports. Well, there are, in New York, we have three major Chinatowns, and the food that you find in them is different. Uh, the one in, in lower Manhattan is kind of old-fashioned, um, and then the, the ones in Brooklyn and Flushing are, are run by people who've come more recently, but the foods are, are very different, and uh, I guess you, you get to pick and choose what appeals to you. Um, for most American non-Chinese, it's the old-fashioned Chinese that they grew up with. Right. There certainly are differences. Well, for she's uh, uh, Adrian Sue says the pandemic revealed that restaurant going of all kinds can be a social good, keeping people employed, enlivening neighborhoods, and sustaining sources of prepared food for those who can't cook for themselves. Right. But you know, it's hard to eat when you're wearing a mask. <laughs> That's true. Um, and I, I think most people were able to take their masks off and eating, but um, there, there was, I think that because many of these pieces that were written were started in 2020, that's when we started asking mm -hmm. our writers to write that there was a lot of um, concern over the pandemic and um, so that that's definitely something that has influenced these writers, but they we definitely went beyond that as well. But I remember talking with one of my own colleagues who, you know, I consider most college professors to be solidly middle class, but the pandemic really um, affected different food systems to the point where one of my colleagues was, you know, standing in line needing food support as well. And I thought, I thought, you know, this, this is revealing the, the cracks in a, our food system, even for those who are privileged in a lot of ways. Well, a lot of restaurants w went out of business because of the pandemic. Right. Um, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen when we get past it totally, uh, whether we're going to see the same sorts of things or a whole new generation of restaurants featuring different kinds of foods. Different kinds of foods, more options for eating outdoors. I think we're still seeing um, people who are comfortable eating outdoors even when the weather is colder mm -hmm. and so I think it, we will see a lot of changes. Now, are we, are we seeing constant change within the way, uh, uh, the way Americans eat? Or um, have we kind of settled into a, 
a, a kind of accepted diet? I think, I think we need to be open to change and open to new information and also open to doing better no matter what diet you choose. So, or approach to eating, I diet has, is a loaded term for some people, but you know, whether you're choosing a, a plant-based diet or some other diet, you can do better. You know, I've read about banana production or, or different kinds of food. We should know where our food comes from and try to do better without um, making ourselves sick and making other people sick through being overly restricted. But I think that 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 there are different ways of eating across the country and a lot of it depends on where you live and what you have access to and regional food is really important you have two writers who um, write about new mexico delisa begay and lindsay bloom um lynn bloom wrote about um chocolate, but Nicole Walker and Alyssa Begay wrote about the four directions of the green chili. Um, mm -hmm. Nicole Walker grew up in Utah, but now lives in Arizona, where she is a professor. And she worked um, with Delissa Begay, um, and who also teaches, and they came together with a, a love for the green chili, which is um, something that that really tied them together, and they also, you know, shared educational philosophies. Even though they come from very different cultures, um, Begay is um, Native American, Indigenous, and as I said, Nicole hmm. grew up um, Mormon. Although I don't believe she's Mormon anymore. We, we encouraged our writers to work with other people, maybe even those who come from different cultures. We had another um, regional piece that was co-authored um, by um, two writers in the Pacific Northwest. One of them was a, um, a Korean American who was adopted and another whose um, grandparent or ancestors came over on the Mayflower and they wow. were really exploring um, the food landscapes in the Pacific Northwest and um, racial diversity and really coming to terms with your own cultural history and how complicated that can be and um, working with other people who come from different backgrounds. My guest, Melissa A. Goldthwaite, is a professor of English at St. Joseph's University and co-editor with Jennifer Cunyard Black, a professor of English at St. Mary's College of Maryland, of a new book called Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically. It is uh, published by NYU Press. It could also be on eating ethnically, but that's a whole other story. Thank you so much for being on our show today. 
Thank you for having me. I'm Is there anything you want to add in the, in the last 30 seconds or so? I would add um, to share with others, whether it's your stories or the, the foods that if you have more than enough, then to share it with others. Um, okay. That's what I and that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station alive during these rough times. We mentioned the pandemic. Well, that has really affected us economically and, and other public radio stations as well. But um, BAI more than most because we rely 100% on listener support. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because... We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of Good Eats, 32 Writers on Eating Ethically, the book we've been discussing with its co-editor, Melissa Goldthwaite. So why not make that call right now at 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero, or go online and become a member at give2wbai.org. Give and the number two, wbai.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10, well, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 dollars a month or more. Whatever fits within your budget, a hundred dollars would be great. It allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. We're also looking for underwriters for this program, Leonard Lopez at Large. Another reason to give us a call at, if you can, at 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org. But anyway, you do it. I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. Uh, it allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, uh, well, and if you, it's also tax deductible. So don't forget to make that tax deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.